If you have your Bibles, we are in 1 John, which is a letter. The guy who wrote the Gospel of John wrote. Uh, he wrote two other letters that we have. Uh, we're going to be looking at the first one right this morning. Um, he wrote two other letters. Um, and he went to great expense and great effort to not only craft these letters, but great expense just to have them sent, right? Not just hiring a scribe and someone to write it down, but just the travel expenses of sending these letters was insane. And, and John is writing to a group of people that he clearly knows. He knows well, he knows them, he cares about them. Not only does he know them and care about them, he loves them. You can tell he's concerned about them because they're going through a controversy. There are people that have been stirring up dissension, trying to lead them away. They were once a part of the church, but they've left, and now they're trying to draw others away. And John is trying to take these people who live in a very unstable world and assure them that they have stable ground for knowing that they have eternal life in Jesus Christ. That's what John's main aim is, is assurance in this letter. To assure them that they have reason to have faith in Jesus. And so the first thing that John says uh, in this letter, we, we looked at last week, but you know what, it's only four verses, so let's read it again. Uh, he opens up his letter this way. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We've seen it and testified to it, proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things to you so that our joy your, our joy may be complete. So he starts out opening this letter up with this amazing claim that the real life that everybody's looking for, the source of all that is true spiritual health, true spiritual wealth, is not some message, it's not a mere teaching, it's not a moral code to be followed, it's actually a person. Someone that John heard, that he that he saw with his eyes that he, that he touched, that he had a relationship with, that he's still in a relationship with. And then through this relationship with this eternal life that has been made physical, that's made manifest, that this eternal thing that became life, he has a relationship with this life and through this relationship with this life with the Father himself. And then he makes another claim that this relationship that the Father and Son have always had Not only was it made to John through the teaching of Jesus and through knowing Jesus and trusting Jesus, now it's being made known to others who hear this message. The eternal life is being made known that way. That fellowship is is available for everyone that hears and believes and loves Jesus. And so this is his opening statement. His claim is that fellowship with the Father and the Son, and this is a beautiful gift. But how do we know that this is the way? Right? Because there are other people out there telling them, the people that John's writing to, that there's a different way. What about this? What if I'm not doing enough? Or how about this? What if, in face of this amazing gift, I've already blown it? Like, what if this amazing offer of this relationship, this fellowship with the Father and the Son, what if I have already done something to spoil it? Before it was offered? Yeah, sure. But even since it was offered, I have 
blown it and I have messed up. What then? Am I going the right way? Is there more things that I, are there more things that I need to do? I think if you grew up how I grew up, you would say this. How do I know that I'm a Christian? Right? How do I know that what I'm doing is enough? How do I know that what I'm believing is the right thing? What else do I need to do? I think that John framing this whole conversation this way helps us see that salvation um, is a fellowship question. Salvation is not just this deliverance from bad things happening to us. Salvation is actually about a relationship with the Father and the Son. It's a relationship through the Holy Spirit by faith in Jesus with the Godhead itself. That's what salvation is, is this fellowship. So we need to understand fellowship because I think that, I mean, it says it right here. He says that there are people who say that they know God, they say they have this fellowship with God, but they walk in darkness. So it's possible, according to John, if this is not the scariest verse from my youth group, I don't know what is growing up, is it possible to think that you have a relationship with God, but not? John says, yeah, for sure, that's real possible. There's a bunch of people out there claiming relationships with God, John says. Yeah, I get it. I know that there's a bunch of claims, but the reality is if you're walking in darkness, you don't have any relationship with God. You're not in that fellowship with God. I think it's possible to claim to have fellowship, not have fellowship. I also think it's possible to have fellowship and think that you don't because we misunderstand fellowship. Here's what I mean. I think that, so the fellowship that John's talking about, I want to be really clear. It's not hanging out, drinking sweet tea, whatever. It's not that. It's, it's deeper. It's the fellowship he's talking about, the best place you see it, you see it all through scripture, but the place that kind of is it's clearest is at the beginning and at the end. At the very beginning, you have Adam and Eve, man and woman, living in this garden where God has placed them, and they have this immediate access, this intimate relationship, this fellowship with the God, the source of all life, right? All of the energy and all of the life that you would need is right there. Imagine living in the garden. Imagine having that kind of relationship with God. What you're talking about is not knowing fear, not having any uncertainty. You're talking about always feeling safe and loved. You're talking about not knowing loneliness or inadequacy, never knowing uncertainty. Why would there be any need for tears? And then you get to the end of the Bible in Revelation, in the end time, and in Revelation 21, it says that God comes back, and here's how it describes God returning, Christ making everything new, and it says that God comes, and it says his dwelling place is once again with mankind. And there's no need for a temple anymore because God is going to live right there in the middle of us. So in some sense, the Bible is really just the story of how we once had a relationship with God and then when it broke and then the whole outflow of what happened, the rest of that story is, is telling us how God put everything back together so we can have that fellowship with God again. Here's what that means. It means that fellowship with God is the thing that you were designed with intent for, which means this, it's the thing that you were actually looking for everywhere, Right? It's the thing that satisfies. Uh, When God comes and makes everything new, when Christ returns and makes everything new, uh, the promise is all of these things that Adam and Eve had. No fear, no uncertainty, no need for tears, because you feel completely loved. I mean, look what happens. Genesis 3, the fall. Adam and Eve sin, fall. Genesis 4, the story of their kids, Cain and Abel. 
the next chapter, once sin is unleashed, the consequences of sin are unleashed on the world, uh, and they know their inadequacy, they know that they're falling short, they know fear, we find one brother killing another brother. Why? Jealousy? Fear? Uncertainty? That manifests itself as anger and rage? Imagine all of those feelings gone and there being no need to act that way because you're so outward-focused. So this is what we're talking about. That's the kind of fellowship that, that we're, the Bible is talking about and describing, this thing that we need. So here's the question, but what about now? Like, what does fellowship look like now? I get it when, in Adam and Eve, I get it in Revelation, but what about now? What does that look like now? And I think we get confused, at least I do, the way that I grew up and the things that I've experienced. I think that one of the things that I confuse fellowship with is emotional response. Does that make sense? Like somehow we think that the people who are closest to God, uh, they're the girls that wear the big flat brimmed hats and stand underneath string lights and sing songs with their hands raised like this. Like those people got to be close to Jesus, right? Or the guys that wear the tiny hats and play piano. For some reason, we think that those are the people that are, that the emotional response, the ones that raise their hand, those are the ones that are close to Jesus. Not necessarily. I mean, I think that how we respond emotionally is going to vary depending on our makeup, our experience, uh, what we've seen in the world, how we are. I mean, God is going to deal with each of us individually. We're not all going to respond in the same way. We're not all going to have the same emotional reaction. Don't get me wrong. Emotions are part of what, how God made us. There will be emotional reactions in our fellowship with God. There have to be at some point. If we have emotions, then God is going to be Lord over those as well. But we can't control it. We can't manipulate it. And God's going to deal with us each differently. And God is going to, we're going to experience and knowing God differently. I have always been um, suspicious, um, probably, I think maybe rightfully so, uh, of the God told me uh, people. Uh, you know, I'm talking about like, hey, God told me to tell you this. I'm a little, I'm always suspicious of, of them. Uh, not because God doesn't tell us things. I want to be very clear. He absolutely does. I'm just telling you I'm suspicious because in my experience, in the tradition, in the way that I grew up, someone that came up and told you that or someone who made that claim, God told me, "Mm," it almost always lined up with the thing they were going to do anyway. I I don't know. It seems dangerous to confuse my desires in the Holy Spirit. My experience has been they don't always line up. So to confuse those two things, I'm, I'm always, but, but God does deal with us that way. But I find myself constantly on guard about, about my feelings and, and my emotions and reading, those, reading too much into those because I do not want to confuse. It is dangerous for me to confuse my emotions with, my, with, with fellowship with God, with God speaking to me and saying things to me. The other thing that we confuse, I think, uh, fellowship with is things going well. I think that there's in our head some way because of just how we, just the world that we live in, the culture that we grew up in, I think that we confuse things going well with fellowship with God. Like if I'm in fellowship with God, things in my life should be going right. Uh, well, here's the thing. We also experience, and that's true, it's possible, it's very true, that's absolutely a thing. But I also want you to know that you experience fellowship with God when he disciplines you. As a matter of fact, the reason he's disciplining you is because there's a relationship. Because as a father, he cares and he corrects. So the idea that we don't have fellowship because my life's not going great, no, 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 no. He might be disciplining and correcting me in my heart because I have a relationship with him. 
I might, because I'm in fellowship with him, there's going to be that at points in my life. It, it also, also we, we can have fellowship with God in suffering. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, I think that a lot of people, if you talk to people who have been through struggles, that follow Jesus, that have been through hard times, and come out the other side, or, or even are in the midst of them, mature believers, I think a lot of them will tell you that the time they felt closest to God, the time they were most aware of their fellowship with God, was in the middle of suffering. I know that in my life, for sure, that's true. I know that the worst moment of my entire life, the time that I was lamenting most, there was somehow a presence and a hope that coexisted and I couldn't make sense of it. I was watching this video. I sent this video to Wendy uh, the other day. I was like, hey, I saw this video. came across it. Uh, it's this video of this woman. I think she must be in her 60s now, named uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. And Wendy's like, oh, I love her. Because Wendy was like doing, like reading good books. And while I was watching, you know, listening to Hendrix, uh, she was doing like reading books by this lady. And so she knew of her, but I, I didn't. And so this video is amazing. She had a diving accident when she was in high school. Very young, very athletic, and broke her neck and... Uh, has been in a wheelchair ever since, quadriplegic. And she said that compared to the suffering and pain that she faces now later in life because of the complications with the quadriplegia, being in a wheelchair does not even compare to the pain that she is now. And she opens this video this way that I was watching. She said, suffering, it doesn't seem like there's any good in it. And she says, but... It will test you. You say that you follow Jesus, see what comes out of your mouth when you're in the middle of intense suffering. She said, she used this, this phrase, I loved it. She says, suffering will squeeze you. And then she ends the video saying this. She ends this testimony saying this, that she has never known, except in suffering, how sweet Jesus is. Amazing. Just because our life's not going well, just because we don't have a huge emotional response, doesn't mean we don't have fellowship with God. The fellowship that we are seeking, the fellowship that that John is talking about here, is the relationship that God has established with us through Jesus by faith. That we access, that we can have, that we can lean into by responding to what he has said to us in prayer in meditation on his scripture, on scripture, by applying what we learn in prayer and meditating on scripture to our hearts and obedience. We experience his presence. We experience the joy. We can experience knowing him no matter what's happening in our life. That is the relationship John's talking about. This relationship that also joins us to each other, other believers to one another. And when you have fellowship with God that he's talking about here, you start seeing things the way he sees them and you have the same desires that he has. And then John says, it's possible to claim this fellowship and not have it. It says it's possible to think that you have a relationship with God, but be walking in darkness. So if we're controlled by the desires of the world, instead of the desires for God, it doesn't matter what we say, whether we say we have fellowship with God or not, we don't have it. Instead, we're walking in darkness. And to live in darkness means to live without the good gift of God's illumination and guidance. And so that means to live in sin. And when we modern people think of sin, uh, it's 
we typically think of it as doing a bad thing, or maybe, maybe even like the advanced class not doing a good thing, right? Uh, but the biblical notion of sin is much wider, it's much broader and deeper. Uh, the biblical notion of sin is being human-focused, being self-focused, being worldly-focused, instead of being God-focused. It's not just the things that I do, it's my general approach to life. Does that make sense? Like It's just the way that I wake up in the morning concerned about me, that is what John is talking about. That is the darkness that we live in. This focus on either the comforts that I can obtain, or, or what I can have here, or what I need for me, this curving in on ourselves that started in Genesis 3 and continues to this very day, where I get up and I'm mostly concerned about me. That's the darkness that John is talking about. Being consumed with me. Now, here's the deal. This is actually a helpful concept uh, for a couple reasons. I I wish that we as a culture hadn't abandoned this. It's it's, it's so helpful. It's helpful for us to understand what's happening in the world, but that's that's for a different day. It's helpful for us relevant today because it means this. It means that we're all starting from the same place. This is what, hold on a second. second. What I'm saying is the idea that we have this natural bent towards self-focusedness, self-centeredness, it means that every single human being begins in the same spot. We all start from, it's about me, right? Here's why this is significant. It means that being the Bible memory person or sword drill champion, love that. It means uh, being the small group leader or the pastor. It means that there are certain situations when that can just be socially advantageous to you. It means that being, because of how you were born and where you were born, it means that being the good person might be just the thing that gets you ahead in the circles that you're in. Does that make sense? It means, let me put it this way, it means that you can be the person that knows all the scripture and teaches and leads and it still be about you. It means that I could, the situation that I grew up in where I was praised for being at church and I was praised for all those things and so it just felt good for me to be in that situation doing those things to look like the good kid. I start from the same place as the kid who was, I don't know, boosting cars. You know, I pick a thing that I just want to do. I feel like I should be able to hotwire a thing. Ah, I don't know why. Like, you know, like gone in 60 seconds. Why can't I do that? I feel like I'd be a good thief. Anyway, uh, uh, we both start from this place in our heart that's mostly concerned about me. And that is such good news because it means that salvation is available to anybody, not just the good people. Right? I mean, if it's just the good people, I mean, don't you know, like, if you, like, I had a head start, right? I had a head start on, on the, and it, it, but that's not what it says. The Bible says that you could have this head start and look all polished and shiny to some world standard. Or you could have started out in a situation that you didn't have any choices, you didn't know any better, and it could look terrible, and you don't know the terrible things that you've done, and it, the Bible says that neither, when God looks at those things, the world could look at that and go, hey, that person's good and this person's bad, and God looks at them and goes, they're both me-centered. 
Both, they're both sin. They both come into this world sinful. They're both focused on them. They're just getting what they can for them. I was really, really messed up. It messed me up. I had several people come to me and we had conversations to talk to me about um, when 2020 happened, 2020, 2021, 2022, into 2022, when all the, you know, you remember that stuff, right? It went down. It was ugly. I had several people say to me, come to me and say, hey, I, the, this person that I looked up to, this just, I wanted to be them spiritually when I grew up. In the last year and a half, I've just turned into angry, bitter people, and I don't know what to do with that. Like, what am I supposed to think about that? That the people that I looked up to, that I wanted to be, that I thought this is the pinnacle of spirituality, are now just angry and bitter? How do I process that? Well, I don't know. I don't know their hearts. But it is theoretically possible that looking spiritual just got them ahead in the circles they were traveling in. I'm not being ugly. I'm just telling you, apparently, according to John, it can look like you have a fellowship with God. You can think you have fellowship with God. But if you're walking in the dark and it's really all about you, it's just walking in the dark and you're fooling yourself. If you are paying attention, at this point in the sermon, it would be a fair assessment for you to look at me and go, hey, you said this was about assurance. You've told me I'm sinful to my core. I might think I'm saved and not be. You're not helping me out at all. I get that. I get that. I'm sorry. But I promise you we're going someplace. There's good news. This is what I do, right? We're going to, go to, go, we're going to get to the good news. I get that it sounds rough, right? For me, at least, this is the rough spot. Uh, it's like going to someone and asking them a like diet advice. Going to a dietitian and them going like, hey, we can help you lose weight, but first we've got to talk about how good pie is. I'm like, nope, no we don't. I already know how good pie is. That's the problem. We don't need to talk about it. Coming here and hearing about, hoping to hear about assurance and hearing about how sinful you are is kind of like showing up for a Weight Watchers meeting and then being like, you know what? We're going to help you lose weight, but first, let's talk about cheeseburgers. Nope. Don't need to talk about cheeseburgers. I'm good. Cheeseburgers is what brought me here, right? Needing assurance is what brought me here and all we've done is talk about sin, but here's the deal. Here's why it actually works this way. It's why we actually need this. We must talk about sin to get to the assurance thing because we forget to live every single day based on the reality that according to scripture, salvation is not based on what you do. So here's the deal. It's when we deny that we're sinners that we're in trouble. It's when we don't realize or act like we're not, act like everything's okay, that we're in real trouble. Paul, just, I did it again. John is writing and he says this. He says, if you could say that you have fellowship, but you walk in darkness, you lie and don't practice the truth. If you say that you have not sinned, you lie. If you say that you are not sinful, you are calling God a liar. If we act like and pretend like our sin is not a big deal, we're in big trouble. It's when we are able to actually confess and acknowledge and see ourselves in light of what God has told us that we actually have hope. Those that aren't aware of their sin, those that deny their sin, those that justify their sin, those that ignore, those of us that ignore our sin, those are the ones, those are, those are the ones walking in darkness. 
and we hate the light. Sometimes in life, we will find comfort in hope and joy in things that we shouldn't. Sometimes we, we don't even know that we're doing it. We come to think that we need these things, that we can't make it without it. And these things, these people or places or whatever they are, we don't see them for what they are, and we can't tell what they're doing to us. And we can tell that they're hard and they're wrong when if somebody ever comes to us and says, hey, that's not right. The thing that you're finding comfort in, the thing that you're doing, the thing that you're thinking about doing, uh, that is not good for you. It is not the way to live optimally. That's not a good way for happiness in your life or around you. And then we get defensive about the thing because we've decided we need the thing to be happy. And when it's threatened, we begin to deny, defend, and excuse No matter how ugly a thing is, that's something that we as humans tend to do. Let me say it another way. Sometimes when the light shines into our life, instead of welcoming it as a help to clear the way, we prefer the dark because it exposes us. That's what John's saying. Another pastor used this illustration, and I, I, I liked it. I couldn't think of a better one, so I, I'm going to use this. Uh, it says that sometimes when we live life and we are living in the dark, uh, you come across things in life. You don't know that you're in the dark, so you come across things in life and you begin to assess them. And you come across stuff that is cold and indifferent and sharp, and you decide, this is not for me. And you come across other things that are inviting and comforting and warm. And then the lights come on and you find out the thing that was inviting and comforting and warm is really monstrous. And the thing that was sharp and cold and indifferent is a knight in shining armor, ready to defend you. It's Jesus. And so, uh, ready to defend you. And so the lights come on, what do you do? Do you run to the thing that was cold and indifferent to protect you? Or do you begin to defend the thing that you've come to believe that you need? That is what John is describing. That is the experience of sin. We need the light. We need to know this. We need to... Walking in the darkness means being controlled by our desires for this world instead of our desire for God, which is bad for us because we choose monsters all the time. It means we aren't looking. St. Pastor said this. The only way that we can desire things more than God is if we're blind to the light of God. To choose gravel over diamonds is to be blind. That's well said. And so God comes into the light. This is the message that we heard from him, proclaimed to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So God is this true light. There's no darkness in him. And this means that he shows us the way. And at the same time, the light reveals us. If you do not have people in your life, friends, family, small group members, that are willing to and brave enough to check you, you're probably in a pretty dangerous spot. Because we need that. We become so blind to the things that we give ourselves to. We need people outside of us that love us. So at this point, you might be thinking, uh, how's this good news, Chris? Still uh, feel like I'm going to hell. Uh, I feel worse than I came here, so I'm going to go to your house and take all your pie. Um, but no, 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 we need this. Because here's the deal. You have no hope of salvation unless you acknowledge that you're a sinner. When the light exposes your world-centeredness, your self-centeredness, 
That is when you have hope of recognizing that you need salvation by a God who is love itself. This isn't about beating yourself up. This isn't about looking around and trying to figure out how I can feel bad about myself. It's about running to the light. It's only those who recognize that they've offended a God that loves them that have any hope of responding. If you aren't aware of your sin, you aren't saved. Because this salvation is entering into this relationship where you acknowledge you need rescue. But I want to be really clear. This is an important thing. Walking in the light doesn't mean that you're sinless. He says that. I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin, but if you do sin, there's an advocate. I'm writing these things. It doesn't mean that you're sinless. It just means that you see your sin how God sees sin, and you respond to it accordingly. A person who's walking in the light is a person who confesses their sin. A person walking in the light is a person who is aware, longing to be made and to be more like Jesus. And we think, here's what he says. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we hide our sin, if we cover our sin, if the light shines into that dark corner of our heart where we didn't even, we didn't even know was there, do we protect it and cover it up or do we confess and repent? And so it's confessing and repenting. Here's the third thing that makes me feel bad about myself, Chris. First was you talking about assurance of salvation, thing I've worried about since I was in youth group. It's when I rededicated my life every single week. Two, talked about original sin. That made me feel bad about myself. And now, three, confession and repentance. I don't think we like confessing and repenting. I think it gets a bad name because if, when I have to confess and repent, turns out I need to do it a lot. And it makes me feel like I'm constantly failing, and I don't feel like I'm constantly failing. We've misunderstood confession and repentance, if that's how we understand it. It's who we are. It's what we are like. And confession and repentance is this gift from God. Here is why, and here's how all of this leads up to this beautiful thing at the core of the Christian faith that is so essential that we have to apply every single day. Here it is. When we confess and repent, he is faithful to forgive. He's faithful to what? To his promise to forgive. He's faithful to all of his promises. That means that when you get up and you fail all day today, tomorrow morning, God will get up and be faithful to forgive you. He has set his mind and his intent to forgive you over and over and over and over again when you confess and you repent. When we run to him, he has committed himself to forgiveness. That's what that means. And then here's the second thing. When we confess and repent, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not only is it good news that he's faithful to forgive us when we confess and repent, it's good news that he is just to do so. Hold on a second. Here's the deal. Here's why this blows my mind. The whole sermon's been leading to this. So if you, you know, this is the thing. This is the time to pay attention. The whole sermon, here's the deal. I think that I expect it to say that God is faithful and merciful to forgive us, right? He's merciful to forgive, is what I want it to read. That God is showing us mercy that we don't deserve. He's doing something that we don't deserve. He's showing us grace when he forgives. That's not what it says. It says that he's just to forgive. This is what's so interesting. God is grace. He is, he is merciful. And in Christ, he showed us mercy. But it says here that he's just to forgive us. 
And here's why. Here's why he's just to forgive us. Because when we go and stand before a holy God, it would be unjust for him to forgive, to not forgive us. He has to forgive us. Why? Because of Jesus. It says that we have an advocate. A propitiation is the $5 fancy word. I love it. But it means substitution. He's the one that stood in our place. So because of Jesus, he stands as our advocate fighting for us. When we confess and repent, Jesus stands before the Father and he says, yep, you're right, he's guilty. He did it. He turned to Whiskey Pot and Phil Collins instead of me again. Like he did it again. Not only that, his heart and his mind, it's gross, he is wicked to his core. Yep, he did it, but you can't punish him again. The price has already been paid. And it would be unjust of you to punish him again when the price has been paid. This is the beauty at the core of Christianity. I spend my whole life worried about, am I really saved? Am I really saved? Because he's a just God. He's a just God. He's a just God. And one day I'm gonna have to stand for him and give account for the life that I've lived. He's a just God. And I live my life in fear of justice and the core of, Christi- of his justice. And the core of Christianity says, you should be assured of your faith because of his justice. It's not what you did, it's what Jesus did. Because of his justice, he will not condemn you again if you were found in him. If you confess and repent and your life is knit up with him by faith, if you love Jesus, if you follow Jesus, and when you, the light shines in your life, you don't hide it, but you confess and you repent and you run to him and you are hidden in Jesus, then you can count on not only his mercy, but on his justice to assure you of your salvation. That's unreal. The thing that scared me for so long is actually a source of hope. The world's upside down. What a beautiful, beautiful thing that God has done for us. We do not stand before God begging him to forgive us again, hoping that there's enough mercy left in him for us. We stand before God and Jesus stands with you saying that forgiving you is the right thing to do because you are in him by faith. You have fellowship with him and with the Father, and we have fellowship with each other because of his mercy and his justice. They don't conflict. He's found a way in Jesus to make them both work for you and me. Unbelievable. This is the thing that we meditate on. This is the thing that we reflect on. This is the thing that we roll around in our head when this is how we experience God's presence. Know his real relationship. How we experience fellowship is when we work these things into our bones and apply them to all of our fears. We apply them to all of our inadequacies. We apply them to all of the places where we find ourselves stumbling and fall that lie underneath our anxieties and our our anger and our frustration and our outward acts. It's applying it to the very core of our soul that we are saved, we are hid safe in Christ because of his mercy and because of God's justice. What a gift. This is how we live. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gift of your word where you explain to us what you're like, that you're a God of justice, that you will bring justice in the world and the world needs your justice. It is a place where horrible things happen. But at the same time, I'm, I've always, I'm just so fearful of your justice because I know that that must also fall on me. But we have an advocate. Help us to run to the light, to run to the light. And when the parts of our heart that are gross, the parts of our heart that are so self-focused, so me-focused, 
when they are exposed by the light, oh, give us the courage, give us the, the, the view of Christ to run to him. That he is gentle and lowly. That he fights for us before a willing God, a God who sent him to die that we might have fellowship with him. This is our relationship. Not held secure by how tightly I hold to Christ, but held secure by how tightly he holds to us. May we celebrate your mercy. May we celebrate your justice. You are good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.